Yes, indeed, we are scientists. Well, most of us are anyway. It's that time again for your weekly dose of the little international science show we call Diffusion. This week we're going to be a little lazy, a little bit random. In fact, we're not even going to bother with the news this week. Instead, we're going to be hopping around with evolving cane toads. We'll be flying around in cars and we'll be talking with monkeys. With us on the show this week, we have myself, Matthew Clark. We have Richard Coots and Chris Stewart. Starting off, let's talk about monkeys. Chris. Yes, well, I've got a a little story this week from uh, New Scientist. It's about um, monkey talk. Have you ever heard the the monkeys in the zoo just going, doing their their usual, and you always kind of thought, just, ah, cute little monkey. But, of course, we're much cleverer than them. And one of the things that distinguishes us from other animals is our wonderful grasp of language. Well, think again, because recent research seems to indicate that not only do monkeys communicate through their sounds, but they've actually got quite distinct phrases as well. And what are they saying? Are they they talking about the Simpsons last night or anything? (laughs) No, they're they're kind of looking out through the cages going, check out this guy's hair. Hey, hey, let's see if we can make him do something. Give him a banana. See what he does. Now, there there was uh, some researchers who... um, from the, the University of St Andrews in the UK. We're out in Nigeria having a, uh, a, bit, of a, a bit of a chat to some of the putty-nosed monkeys out there. Uh, these, are, these are monkeys that dwell up in the trees and have to run away from predators. They have very soft noses, pliable I think they noses. probably do. You yeah. can stick <laughs> posters to walls with them. Mm. Um, and they, they noticed that there were particular sounds that the monkeys were making whenever a predator came nearby. If a leopard came nearby, they might uh, make a pew sound. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, if a, a, an eagle was nearby, by. They'd make a kind of a hacking noise. And so they decided to, to test what happened when they started playing these recordings to the monkeys, which sounds a bit cruel I don't to me. To say, that's, just, yeah. that's just nasty. Aside from the fact that the monkeys were wetting themselves most of the day, they found that the dominant males in the group were, in fact, making these piao hack type noises in order to warn off the, uh, the the other members of their of their group of monkeys. They weren't just so, waking up with smoker's cough, were they? No, no, they weren't just waking up with smoker's cough. A couple of Cuban cigars the mm. night before. No, they were in fact communicating the specific danger coming up, and this is something which hadn't really been seen in uh, in monkey species before. So there you go, monkey language. Monkey language. Now, Richard, I believe you also have been investigating the world of monkeys. Yes, Matt and Chris, if you've ever been to the zoo and thought there just might have been that special spark between you and that special chimp... Who hasn't? ...then you might have been onto something. Because it turns out that our prehistoric ancestors, the early humans, uh, also thought that chimps were a bit of all right. In fact, US genome experts have been comparing human and chimp DNA, and they dispute the traditional theories that chimp and human-like species had a sudden and definite split millions of years ago. They say it looks more like the two emerging species hung around for a bit and interbred, causing hybridisation. Now, they didn't have beer back then, did they? So <laughs> no. can't that, even blame that's, it on that's that. That's not an excuse. Jeez, it should look good in the pub. So, yeah, well, I don't know. It's, uh, they were hanging around. There wasn't much else to do. <laughs> Pretty quiet back then. The, the, the saber-toothed tigers weren't, you know, interrupting too much. And one thing led to another, I guess. The moon was full. It was a magic night. What can I say? That's right. You know, there was a bit of... I was an animal the love song dedications on the prehistoric radio. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there are evidence for this is that the human sex chromosomes, which are kind of more vulnerable to being changed because of interbreeding, um, are newer or less developed um, than 
the other se- than the other chromosomes. So if, in there, our if genome. there had been a very definite split between the two groups, it'd all be about be the same that. sort of time. Yeah, right. So this is evidence that maybe there was just a little bit of canoodling going on mm. between different bit of, species. Bit of monkey business back then, which yes. is I back know, maybe then. I find that just a little bit disturbing. I think we do need to emphasize the back then I part think we of do. it. <laughs> okay, well, while we think about that. Let's get into a little bit of Jamiroquai with Starchild. Once again, that was Jamiroquai with Starchild. Now, from the evolution of monkeys to the evolution of men, we're talking about the sequencing of the genome, and I believe we're close to, or have finished this. Richard? That's right, Matt. There's champagne corks flowing at the human genome labs all around the world. Champagne corks flowing, not just the champagne. Um, <laughs> must be very hot in those, in those labs. Because <laughs> um, they're celebrating, they've mapped the final genome, oh, they've mapped the final chromosome in the human genome. They left uh, chromosome number one till last because it was the biggest. Uh, yes. And they've kind of been waiting till their computer power got it went in the too hard basket, did it? That's right. You know, yeah, I'm a bit like that. You do the easy bits first yes. and worry about the hard stuff later. You know, eat your broccoli last. Um, so chromosome one has 3,141 genes. And they reckon, oh, they know that uh, some of them relate to cancer, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So a few hopeful medical things that's, happening That's a big there. one. Yeah, well, now let's the, let's the just, just remind ourselves because I always get these things confused. You've got DNA, 
which is which is made up of of your your, your base pairs and so on, and that's that's the double helix. Mm. DNA, you you curl it all up and you make genes, and genes are the things which um, code for building proteins in the body, and mm-hmm. then genes clump together in many 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 to make chromosomes, and that's the, right. the human genome project is trying to map out all of the genes in all of our chromosomes in order to try to understand how the hell we work. Yes. In a nutshell. And it's a massive job. Yeah. And it's taken them 16 years to do it. Fantastic. And so what do we know? Well, we know that we finished it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, it's, so it's a little bit like you know, translating a really, really, really big book mm. and then going, right, now we've just got to read it. That's yes. exactly figure out what, what it means. That's right. Piece There's... of cake. No worries. No worries. So, yeah, there's a lot of data to go through. There's an awful lot of things to find out. Um, 16 years, like I said, of collaborating scientists all around the world in all different labs. And, um, yeah, they finally finally finished it, so it's time to go back and have a look at the data. All right, so it'll only probably be about another three or 400 years before we actually know what it all means. Yes. Well, that's right. It was kind of the easy step just yeah, to read it, was, it, wasn't really. it? 16 years was the easy step. Yes. But, uh, Chris, I believe you've been looking at the, the evolution of, of cane toads. Well, I have. I, I came across an interesting story this week. And it actually, I, I admit, it was something that we covered on the news on this uh, on this very show uh, a couple of months ago when it first came out. There was a paper in Nature back in February of this year by a, uh, a local Sydney scientist by the name of Rick Shine and some of his colleagues. And, uh, and Rick does a lot of work into uh, snakes and lizards. And he was up in the Northern Territory um, chasing around after some snakes, looking at their, their ecology and so on, and found that the entire habitat was being overrun by cane toads, which completely destroyed their study. But they figured, mm. well, here's an opportunity. Let's just study the cane toads instead. And they found this fascinating thing that in the time span since cane toads have been introduced to Australia, they've been evolving. Now, I don't know about you, but, well, I kind of stopped studying biology back in about grade 10. Mm. I've been sort of more of a physical science kind of guy. But I always thought that evolution was something that happened over, you know, eons, enormous lengths of time. That's what you always think about, that, mm. that people evolve or humans have evolved out of, out of, you know, our ancient ape cousins over thousands and thousands of years. Now we're talking cane toads evolving over about 50, 50 years, 60 yes. years. Right? They were introduced back in the, when was it? Anyone off the top of their head? Somewhere back in the 50s. Yeah, I sure. Anyway. It, was, it was post just not long Less than 100 war. years, yeah. anyway. Yes. And he's talking about evolving. So what's going on here? Well, what he found was that when the cane toads were marching their way across northern Australia, from, you know, they were introduced on uh, in, the, in the cane fields mm. uh, on the eastern coast yeah. of far north Queensland. They're now making their way across to the Northern Territory and up into Kakadu and so on. And as they're going across, the ones who were a bit faster are at the, at the front, you know, leading mm-hmm. edge of this invasion. And because the conditions are just really good for them, there's no predators, nothing's going to, you know, get in the way of a cane mm. toad. Um, save a and, cricket bat. Well, save a cricket bat. There's not that many of them in, a wild, mm. in the wild. Um, they basically got it, you know, they're, they're laughing. And so the faster ones actually have an advantage. Yes. So they get out ahead and they breed. In other words, it's a really nice little experiment in natural selection. And so what they found is that there's this little evolutionary process going on where the cane toads at the front of this invasion have evolved longer legs, much longer legs than the cane toads back in the pack. Mm-hmm. And they've really? been watching this passing by their research station. The first ones to come past are these really long legs and then a bit shorter and a bit shorter again at the back. Now, this has happened over the last 50 years and it's one of the few cases around of experimental evolution. 
most of the time evolution is studied in the lab either through looking back at ancient fossils and that kind of thing or trying to to piece together the story from what's around now but experimental evolution usually is only happening with um, you know things like bacteria which can go through a generation very very quickly yes there's an experiment which has been going on with e coli since 1988 uh, you know, with these E. coli in the lab breeding over and over and over again, and they've gone through about 40,000 generations. Mm. That's enough time for you to actually see some evolutionary effects. Where cane toads are fairly long-lived, aren't they? They're a couple of years, aren't they? It's yeah, yeah. So even if they're breeding over the, t- over the time scale of months or years, they're going through, what, maybe dozens of generations. And yet, with under these right circumstances, up there in far northern Australia, mm. Queensland and Northern Territory, because you've got these conditions where the faster ones are able to get ahead and breed amongst themselves, and that's a form of natural selection, you're able to see evolution at work. I'm sure I also read that they're actually they're actually going down the roads. The, well, so they're finding different ways to get around. Because so they don't have to struggle through the bush or well, or you? what bush there was. So they they actually. You? I mean, you you know you've got you got the possibility of going through bush or to go down swamp or whatever. Or hey, here's a nice. Road. Well, not act, not actually down the tarmac, but yeah. on the side of the on the culverts beside not, the road. Not where strictly hitching a ride. No, because they tend to get run over by road trains yeah, and things yeah. there. So they're you know they're, they're learning to use the environment mm. as well. So that was you know that that was something that I was having a look into this week. I thought it was kind of interesting.
and that's the cloud room with we sleep in the ocean now speaking about ocean or rather flying over it how's that for a segue we're t- <laughs> nice one, a very, <laughs> very crappy smooth. crappy segue we're talking about um flying cars uh carl dietrich an mit aeronautical engineering graduate has um designed a vehicle in the um in the frame of a uh, a flying car. Now this so, is this is something which has been on the promise since the Jetsons. I mean, I don't know about yes. you, but I, w- I was sort of thinking when I was a kiddie, come on, surely by the year two thousand, a couple of things. First of all, we'll all be living on the moon, and Absolutely. secondly, we'll all be driving flying cars. Well, I want to know where's my flying car. Well, they reckon by uh, twenty ten, so going to be uh, ten years late, but uh, we'll have these flying cars on the roads and in the skies. But the thing that Carl has a, uh, a bit of an issue with them actually being called flying cars, he prefers the term roadable aircraft. Okay, so flying car is car that flies. Roadable aircraft is plane that drives. That's exactly right. So right. he's... Um, it's a subtle difference. Yeah, I, I quote him saying he's trying to steer away from the Jetsons. It's a step in that direction, but a baby step. Ah, so basically, I've got a, a picture on here of, um, that I found um, on the internet, uh, Popular Science, if you're interested, um, where the, the car actually, or the, um, the, the rotable aircraft, as, he, as Carl likes to call it, actually folds up into a pretty small package. You could fit it into your garage. I mean, it looks a bit like a Cessna, Cessna where the wings fold up. It, does look, right. it yeah. does look a bit like a Cessna with the wings folded up, and that's almost what it is. It's about the size. It, uh, Actually, it, it looks like a bit of a cross between a Cessna and one of those origami birds. Yes. You know? And a smart car. <laughs> and a smart car. Yeah. And, and it does, uh, it has only two seats, uh, this particular design, and uh, has no boot, so you can't really take too much in the way of luggage or clothes, so you're not really going to fly to a holiday destination. See, this is no good for our four-wheel drive generation. That's right, Where yes. are you going to put the six kids, the big dog, and the... Mm. You know, the baby buggy. Plus, you have no safety at the expense of others. Exactly. A big part of the four-wheel drive. That's why you buy a 747. That's right. (laughs) Yes. But the thing, the the problem that has always existed with uh, these uh, roadable aircraft designs is that getting it from the garage to the runway Ah. and making sure that you don't have an accident, take out bins, cars, decapitate people as you're getting from the, the garage to the runway. Now, he uh, accomplishes this by folding the wings very, very... It's almost like a, concert, a concertina. So they they can fold down very small. Oh, I see what you're saying. So getting it out of the garage is, you know, you're backing it up and you've got these big wings sticking out the side. Mm-hmm. And you just happen to, you know, knock the head off your, your six-year-old while she's playing in the in the yard. And, That's right. And, you know, take out the post box on the way through. And But if the wings fold up, then they fold up very. Nice. They fold up to a pretty tiny package so that the... Uh, the the flying car, I'm going to call it a flying car, and I don't care what Carl says, it actually only has a height with the wings folded of 6.4, for um, about two metres, a little over two metres. Uh, and the, the length is, it comes in smaller than uh, your average um, Holden Commodore mm. or large, large family vehicle. Is this propeller or jet? It is uh, propeller-driven. See, that would be my biggest fear. Yeah, a bit dangerous going down the street. Yeah. It's pro- the, the propeller is not uh, what propels it down the street, though. Uh. Uh, I believe it actually engages um, the 
the same motor, but right. actually engages the wheels. Right. It drives the wheels as it goes down. Yeah. And on that, they reckon that this guy can get it up to um, highway speeds. He reckons he can get it up to 160 k's an hour. Blimey. On the road. So and I guess the obvious question there is, why would you drive the highway when you have a plane car? Well, yeah. Well, you have to get it. You have to get it from the garage to the to the airport. So if See, you leave, no. Look, yeah. If I'm waiting till 2010 for a not a flying car, what is it? It's a, a roadable aircraft. A roadable aircraft. If I'm waiting till 2010, I don't want to have to drive to a runway. That's right. I want it to be able to take off from my front yard vertically upwards and fly around. And it's supposed to be shaped like a bubble and lights around the edges and we're all supposed to have antennas poking and out. And those rings around everything. I'm sorry. I'm not, and I'm not buying it. No, forget it. Yeah, It's not going to help me get to uni. It's no. not really any use to me. No, forget it. Forget no. It. Unless I went to uni in a different state. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nice idea. Yes, but uh, I believe, uh, Richard, you've been looking at... Um, you mentioned something about thinking caps. Metal, was it? Magnetic thinking Magnetic caps. Magnetic thinking caps. That's right. Um... It's talking of Sydney Uni. <laughs> As we were. <laughs> As we were. Um, Matt or Chris, have you ever wanted to uh, be creative at the flick of a switch? Have I? There you Gosh. go. Well, <laughs> using some magnetic pulses to deactivate part of your brain, some of your brain's higher functions actually might be just the help that you need. Uh. See, what the researchers from the Centre for the Mind at the University of Sydney have been trialling is they've been trying to uh, recreate the seemingly supernatural mental abilities of some autistic people. Like the Rain Man. Like the mm. Rain Man. In fact, well, the team believes that autistic savants, as they're known, uh, have access to uh, the brain's lower sensory functions that most of us don't use. And so non-autistic people use their uh, temporal lobes to interpret the world around them and sort of see the bigger picture. They identify patterns and familiarities. But what uh, autistic savants like the Rain Man sort of use is they... They see the world as an inc- what have I written here? An incongruous collection of disparate objects. So um, they're much more able to uh, achieve the sort of feats that he's seen that uh, the guy uses in the movie, where uh, Dustin Hoffman's character counts 246 toothpicks as they fall on a cafeteria floor. Right. Because he sees each individual toothpick and can count those rather than seeing a, a bunch of toothpicks. So being the, dropped. The, the the bit of the brain which is going pile of toothpicks which has fallen onto the floor from a matchbox and maybe I better bend down and pick them up before they stab someone in the foot forgetting all of that he's just saying pile of toothpicks that's 246 that's right because the, 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 the other level of cognition which is about what does this all mean isn't kicking in mm, that's, that's right cool. Which cool. is interesting, isn't it? I mean, does, is he counting them as they f- fall down? I mean, does oh, he is he going one, two, three, four, five, or is he just seeing the number two hundred forty six in his head? Interesting idea. But now, this is this is the Centre for the Mind at the University of Sydney. That's this right. Is, this is Alan Schne- Alan Schneider. That's right. Oh, I think I saw something about this dude in the Interesting guy. He's an interesting guy. Yeah. Kind of kind of waltzes around the university wearing capes and things. He's can we say eccentric? I think we can say eccentric. Yeah. I think he's he's definitely got the stamp of eccentric. Isn't the, the difference between um eccentricity and um, and craziness just um, how much money you have it's I heard uh, perhaps so or, or, <laughs> or if you have the backing of the dean perhaps. that's right yes. if you're getting ARC you know, research grants then you're definitely eccentric and not crazy but are these caps going to make you more creative or less creative at the well more see what well basically what they're trying to get at is that um, it's possible for you know people who aren't you don't have sort of autistic savant syndromes um, or symptoms is to uh, allow them to think more creatively by Forcing their brains not to apply the sort of prejudices and the sort of you know pattern enforcing uh-huh. um, things onto onto things that they see, so that 
instead of you know seeing something as you've always been taught to see it as you're used to seeing it as you know society tells you to see it you can see it in totally different Right. ways and it really opens right. up you know the, the possibilities but you can't necessarily have both i mean this is talking about turning off part of your mm. brain not turning on a different part yes and so different. it's it seems to be saying that you can't necessarily have both at once you, you can't have the wonderfully analytic um, um pattern forming and, and sort of higher level stuff mm. and this amazing sort of autistic savant stuff going on at the same time yeah. it's kind of one or the other fortunately it is or you know, instantly switch onable, switch offable, and there's no sort of long-term effect. So I, I guess you kind of would maybe put yourself in and out of a state mm-hmm. to try and, and hope that your memory works in between I'm the two states. Just tip matches all over the floor. I need to know how many there are. Quick, quick get quick, me that number. Two hundred forty-six. And off. I better now I need up. to pick up two hundred forty-six matches. That's right. That's maybe you can incorporate incorporate in some sort of an iPod or something. Yeah. Coming to a gadget near you. Since I was a lonely child I think I feel too much Been without it for so long I really need to feel its touch So where is the And sadly, that's all we have time for on this edition of Diffusion. Warming the seats on this week's show were Richard Coots and Chris Stewart. If you'd like any information on any of the topics we doubled in this week, if you believe you're a Merovingian king as foretold in the Da Vinci Code, or if you have a cash for comments deal for us, you can email us on diffusion at 2SER.com. This week, Diffusion was produced myself up here in the forgetful studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. We're also broadcast wherever you happen to be via our podcast. Have a search for us on iTunes. According to the waistband of my underpants, I'm Matthew Clark, and I hope to see you back here next week for another round of science news and views on Diffusion. Be a shoulder to cry on